I'm your host, Char Adams, and this is COVID University, New York. Since the COVID-19 shutdown began earlier this year, a single term has been forced into our collective consciousness, essential worker, a public or private sector employee who is considered to provide an essential service to critical infrastructure. But many of these employees have said they don't feel as important as the label suggests, with low wages, little to no paid time off, and grueling working conditions. Workers across the country have gone on strike as a result. This has sparked a national conversation about labor and work in the United States. Bus drivers, construction workers, grocery store workers, and more are demanding proper financial compensation and protection from COVID-19, as many of these workers have died due to the virus. Nearly all 50 states, at some point, ordered non-essential businesses to close. But thousands of essential workers have been expected to report to work faithfully as the deadly illness continues to ravage the country. Many come into close contact with people each day and have even tested positive for coronavirus in recent weeks. These workers are called heroes and routinely thanked for their service by leaders, companies, and large corporations. Some have called this lip service, aimed at deifying the group without actually making their material lives any better. Poor working conditions have always existed in the U.S., but the COVID-19 pandemic has only highlighted how underpaid and undervalued essential workers can be. What does it mean to be an essential worker in the United States? How can we protect this group of employees deemed absolutely necessary in the midst of a pandemic? And how can we address the ways local, state, and federal governments have fallen short in this area? These are all questions that must be asked as the pandemic stretches to the end of 2020. My name is Charles Scott. I am presently the Director of Facility Services at the CUNY Graduate Center. Facilities is a service-orientated occupation. It consists of solving problems. Before the pandemic, I wasn't an essential worker. Once the pandemic hit, and then I'm told that I have to report to work every day to keep the building going for those who couldn't be here. It changed the playing field. It's not as simple as I was just facilities. Now I'm essential. Now I have to be here. Now I have to take care of the building and the occupants of the building. Most people don't understand that the buildings department, the fire department, DASNY, 57th Street, CUNY Central, they all have a stake in what goes on in these buildings. So I'm not just answering to the people in the building, I'm answering to everyone at large. It's 24-7, I'm on call. So I would get calls, whether it be 12 o'clock at night or four o'clock in the afternoon, didn't matter. I have to be on call. It hasn't been easy. I've just stayed away from everyone since this started. I haven't kissed my daughter or my grandkids. I haven't hugged my brother. I FaceTimed them, I talked to them, but I didn't want to take the chance in going around them, being that I was at high risk because I'm traveling. I think the most difficult part is keeping the people that I'm working with safe and myself. The people that's coming here every day 
I have to make sure that they return to their families safe. So the sanitizing of the elevated buttons that we all pressing, the extra attention I have to take to the bathrooms because we have limited access to bathrooms now. I have to close sinks and stalls and urinals to limit and use the social distancing. So yes, it's gotten a lot tighter, but we have all worked together to keep that distance, to know what our responsibilities are and to take care of them without limited involvement. And when we ever return, that responsibility is gonna be impacted tenfold now because everyone has a concern about returning. Everyone has a different opinion about what it should be as opposed to what it is. My name's John Krinsky. I teach political science at the City College of New York and at the CUNY Graduate Center. I've been with CUNY, this is my 18th year at CUNY. And at City College, I also lead something called the Community Change Studies Program, which is a minor that introduces students to grassroots politics and community organizing in New York City. Essential workers were people who were understood to keep the, to keep everything moving insofar as anything was moving. So you had people who were keeping the subways open and cleaning them and driving buses. And very often with reduced hours and often reduced headcount, you had workers who were cleaning buildings, providing security. All of the people who were doing warehouse work and post office workers and drivers. I don't think we're on the road right now to say appreciating so-called essential work enough to pay for it. And in fact, I think we could even be moving in the opposite direction. Our entire ways of managing public sector employment for the last, you know, really in a lot of ways for the last 40 years, has been to publicly demonize public workers, consider them to be simply a drain on the public fisc and on taxpayers, to do as much as we can to change the way public work is done so that more and more of it can be done by people who don't have specialized training, and then to neglect some of the more essential stuff. So I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, think about what it would be like to hire enough workers in the MTA to make all of the bathrooms that exist in subway stations functional and clean on a regular basis. What would that mean? It would mean that you have fewer police that are enforcing quality of life nuisances against people who have otherwise no access to bathrooms. You have uh, possibly ridership up. You know, there are all these kinds of things that we don't think about when we think about work and, and what is important about work. And I'm afraid that as we see public budgets tightening and tightening, without, of course, the you know, idea that we should actually raise enough taxes from people who are able to pay to prevent this tightening. But as we see these budgets tightening and tightening, 
these are the kinds of things that are actually going to get worse rather than better. And they all come back to this question of work and how we arrange work, how, how we decide in a complex work environment who does what. My team or my guys that work with me, my engineers, my mechanics, uh, Colleen Denemy, my office assistant, those people are the people on the front line that's actually working with me. I have to make major decisions, but it's based on the information I get from the people I work with. They're not just essential in a time of crisis, but they should be honored and respected always. As long as they're doing their job, as long as they toe the mark, they should be respected and honored for that. Financially, they should do something for essential workers. I mean, I didn't get no stipend check. I didn't receive nothing, but I should. The fact that I've been here since March, I should receive something in lieu of, or as in addition to some type of bonus or something monetary and that we should be granted a seat at the table after this. When you're making decisions, we should be heard. The biggest crime is not to listen to us. And it's after this is all over, I'm just afraid that we will go back to being invisible. If you really want to support us, then you should listen to us. Our opinions should matter and our input should matter. We'll be right back after these messages. If you're a fan of this show, you might also want to check out our sister series, The Big Shut-In. Long-form conversations with all kinds of people, real people, all around the country, to find out the variety of what they're dealing with and how they're coping during the coronavirus crisis. It's unscripted and intimate, and really gives you a view into people's lives as they navigate a truly difficult time. You can find The Big Shut-In at racecarradio.com and wherever you get podcasts. I'm beyond my biggest fear. I, 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 I'm only looking at what's going to happen when this is over. If they came up with a cure tomorrow, if everything was all right by next week, would we go back to just being the guy who cleans your bathroom, you know? Will they remember all of this? I'm not talking about the thank yous that I hear so often, like it's rehearsed. I'm, I'm talking about being genuine and looking at yourself and saying, maybe we at the institution could do better. I mean, this little horror ride has opened our eyes to see we need to treat people better especially the people that work with us. Because without them, there wouldn't be no us. I mean, it's hard to know what a post-COVID normal looks like. I think everybody just assumes that we're going to go back to the way it was. But even if we don't go back to the way it was, I mean, which on some levels could be a really good thing, I generally think that we're going to return to some of our older bad habits of thought, including thinking about skilled and unskilled work as if there's a clear demarcation between those, as if skill isn't and hasn't historically often been a 
demarcation of exclusion from certain kinds of workforces that are not at all based on technical ability. COVID has been clearly a disaster for the city, but it's been a really unequal disaster. It's a disaster that has affected black and brown communities at much, much higher rates, both in terms of incidence and in terms of mortality. And it's not surprising. And part of the reason it's not surprising is that in the, especially in the sort of first few very, very bad months of COVID, there were several factors that put black and brown communities at higher risk. And one of them was that there were a lot more people in those communities who were deemed essential workers. And so they had to show up. So the essential worker label as it is, is problematic. One of the things about COVID is that like most disasters, it kind of did more to expose than to fundamentally change the central dynamics in our society. When I started here in 2002, I didn't have long rose-colored glasses. Um, like I said, I grew up in America, so I understand certain things. But we are forced to be excellent. You, you just can't be good. It, it's, it's, it's not the way things work. In order for you to be in a position to supervise others, to make decisions and to sign invoice and to do all the things that they are required, you can't be average. I had to be above average. I had to go the extra mile every time. You always have to reprove yourself, no matter how good you are, is that one time when you couldn't do something that is held against you. You know, you, the college always talks about diversity. And then I look in the room, I'm the, I'm the only black person sitting there. That's not diversity. And most of the time it's the wrong people at the table advocating for this. Because when they call and realize that they have to make this judgment call, they don't call the right people. They surely don't call grassroots people, somebody that could, that's been on both sides of the table. You know, I started out as a porter and ended up as the director of facilities. Why would I have to go back to supervision? Why would, if I was to get another job, they look at my resume, but they still have doubts. Even when I came to CUNY, there was an issue that there were no African-Americans on the facility staff at all. And the only reason they hired me was because I was black. So they had to put me through the grinder to make sure that I was qualified and it wasn't just tokenism to keep the masses happy. But again, I'm 64 years old. I'm no stranger to this kind of treatment. I've learned over the years to deal with it. But I also realized that in order for me to succeed, I have to be excellent. I can't be average. I can't be this good. I have to take it over the top. Because if I don't, I will be avoided. I wouldn't be where I am today if I was average. If we're able to get rid of the Republican Senate, and if there's a Democratic presidential administration, 
then the question of, well, what can the federal government do gets much more, gets clearer. You know, more and more Americans think that joining a union would be a great idea and fewer and fewer Americans are part of unions. And part of that has to do with the way that labor law is structured in the United States. And I'm not sure exactly how to reform it, but something has to happen so that workers can act collectively on their own behalf in a way that has been eroded steadily again for the last 40 years and in some ways longer. And we're seeing the consequences of that in the sort of rampant inequality that has made COVID worse than it had to be. Well, after this experience, the only career that would make sense probably would be politics because it, there needs to be a wake-up call and things need to change. When the whole Black Lives Matter movement started up, and this is not something new to me. At my age, I've seen police brutality. I've seen racism. I know it too well. Too well. I don't have to read it. I don't have to see it on Channel 7 News. This is not something that's new to me. But what it is, if you're awakening the masses, you need to listen to the people that's been here. Some of those solutions are embedded in our souls. We are totally familiar with our surroundings. We just never heard. So a part of moving forward, I believe we need new leadership on every aspect. We need the young and the old to speak together and come up with a better plan because this plan is horrible. My name is Shar Adams, and this is COVID University, New York. It was produced by David Hoffman, post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, executive producer Peter Christian Eigner. This is a co-production of the Gotham Center for New York City History and Race Car Radio. Initial funding for this series was generously provided by the Seed Time Fund and Lauren Kramer. If you have feedback for us, you can reach us through our Facebook page or email us at coviduniversity at racecarradio.com. If you like the show, please subscribe now and never miss an episode. Just go to racecarradio.com or find us on any of your favorite podcast apps.